Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm not Jordan Rubin. I am, of course, uh, David Schultz, the producer of this podcast. Jordan Rubin is still out on paternity leave. Jordan, if you're listening, hope things are going well. I don't think Jordan's listening. <laughs> I know he's not. I know. Firstborn, I, I can pretty much guarantee not listening. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, Kimberly, we don't really have a lot to talk about. As we mentioned last time, we didn't get any opinions uh, this week. The Supreme Court took a Memorial Day vacation. But we did get some shadow docket action. Um, what happened there? This is a really, really weird case. Well, we actually got a couple of shadow docket opinions. I think the one that received the most attention was Net Choice versus Paxton. And this is involving a social media law out of Texas. You know, David, now that I'm thinking about it, I really am starting to feel like the Supreme Court should just start its own like little Texas docket. I mean, so much has come out of Texas. We have death penalty cases. We had all those abortion cases. I think it was this, the Texas Solicitor General's office argued something like six or seven cases at the court this term, which is crazy when you think that they're going to, you know, they argued something in the 60s. So I don't know, just a thought for them if they're listening. Yeah. And, and or I mean, at the very least, they should just all wear cowboy boots <laughs> un, under the I mean, I think that's the least they could do. Uh, maybe they are. We don't really get to see when they come on to no the bench. We don't really get to see their footwear. Um, no way of knowing. So, OK, uh, back to the actual order in this yes, case. Please. So this is a law that regulates large social media platforms, and it's a law called SB 20. And it basically prohibits these platforms from banning users based on their viewpoints. So that actually doesn't sound that terrible for people who like free speech. But, you know, social media companies like Twitter and all the usual uh, say that it's going to require them to, you know, allow Nazis to use their platform, white supremacists, to allow disinformation to be spread. And they point to kind of all the disinformation that was spread about the 2020 election and kind of how it led up to January 6th. And they kind of have a re- almost a, re- a reverse free speech argument in a way. That's my wording, not uh, <laughs> actual legal Term, but they, they're saying that this is violating their free speech rights because it's forcing them to engage in speech that they don't want to be engaging in. Right. And I think, you know, they hit really hard on the fact that these these are not government entities. Right. And that's who what the First Amendment is supposed to regulate. It's supposed to stop the government from infringing your speech. Uh, it's not supposed to say anything, really, or at least now it's debatable whether or not the First Amendment is supposed to guide private companies like Twitter and the like. Um, and so, yes, of course, they're making the argument that this is exactly what the First Amendment was meant to protect, was the government forcing them to say something. So that's kind of the, um, you know, lay of the land as it uh, as it comes to the federal courts. And it's sort of a complex procedural history because, you know, they went to the district court sort of in what's called a pre-enforcement challenge, um, asking the district court to not let Texas allow this law to go in effect. So that pretty much the argument that, like, once they make all these changes, there's no, like, unringing that bell. Um, They're going to have to make these sweeping changes across all their platforms. And, of course, not just in Texas, but everywhere around the world, right? 
So they asked the, the trial court to um, prevent Texas from putting the law into effect, and the trial court agreed. Um, and then Texas appealed to the Fifth Circuit, um, and the Fifth Circuit stayed that ruling, basically saying, no, 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 Texas can go ahead and have this law in effect while you know the federal courts work out the constitutionality of the law. So then the social media companies came to the Supreme Court, and they asked them to lift the um, the Court of Appeals's stay. So they asked them to, again, say Texas can't, uh, you know, put this law into place. And, th- and this was on a, an emergency basis. They wanted the Supreme Court to act now. Right. Again, with the idea being that, like, once they make these changes, they're done and there's not going to be, you know, there's there's going to be these sweeping ramifications for them. So the Supreme Court um, sat with this uh, request for a while, and this week, I guess they had some extra time since they weren't issuing any rulings, um, and they they did go ahead and lift the Court of Appeals's stay of the trial court's ruling, and I, I don't know. Basically, what they did was they say, yes, Texas, you cannot put this law into effect while the litigation kind of runs through the federal courts. Right. And this certainly has huge, you know, free speech uh, implications and huge implications for anyone who uses social media like you or me or mostly everyone else in the world. (laughs) Um, But what I really want to talk about is the lineup here. Mm -hmm. This is wacky. Can you tell me about the four justices who dissented from this ruling? Um, Well, it's the I don't know why you're, you know, thinking this is odd. It's the classic lineup of. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kagan, which we see so often. Uh, no, okay. Kagan. <laughs> Kagan, right. So Kagan didn't actually join the opinion that Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch wrote, which kind of laid out their reasoning why they would have just left the the lower court's opinion in place and allowed Texas to go forward with the law. Um, you know, they have their reasons why. Kagan just said, look, I I wouldn't have granted this opinion. So that's left us all speculating, like, what is going on here? Why is Kagan um, in dissent? And, you know, when I saw this, I think the procedural, don't tune out, everyone, this is important. <laughs> I think the procedural aspects of this case are really important. And I actually wondered, like, why didn't this go the other way? Why aren't Breyer and Sotomayor also on this side? Um, and that's because we've seen similar procedural um, cases come to the court in the context of the death penalty, where some lower court has this has halted an execution and the state comes to the Supreme Court and says, hey, we, we really want to go forward with this execution. Please let us do it. And they've done it over the past several terms. They've kind of taken this extraordinary step of of allowing the execution to go forward over a lower court's kind of contrary ruling. And we've seen some really robust dissents from the three more liberal justices. Um, and I think that's sort of, you know, again, we're speculating. We don't know. Um, but I think that's what be, was behind Kagan's vote here. And, you know, if you look at it, look, if she voted with the majority, it was going to be 6-3. The outcome was going to be the same. This gives her sort of a freebie to play this kind of long game um, that we all speculate she's playing, where she kind of really tries to stand on principle so that 
when her more conservative colleagues want to do something that's out of the norm, she can say, but see, look what I did in this other case. We have to be more principled. Now, I'm hearing Jordan in my head um, saying like... (laughs) Jordan, is that you? (laughs) Is that you? (laughs) Get out of my head. Um, Saying like, what is Kagan getting for this long game? Like, you know, um, and I still don't think we've really seen any concrete um, kind of payoffs for her. I do still think that that's kind of behind this vote. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even kind of she didn't write anything about this. She didn't explain why she dissented. But, you know, trying to get inside her head. I mean, to have a judge who is unelected block a law from taking effect that was passed by the elected branches of government before that law has even been adjudicated, you know, blocking it in a preliminary way, that's pretty extraordinary. So I could see why maybe Justice Kagan would would feel a little uncomfortable with that. Do you think that was part of it? I, I definitely think so. And I I think, too, you know, the fact that the trial court and the appellate court kind of came out different ways really shows right. that, like, it's not really at all clear how this case is going to come out under, you know, what the current law is. And that's a big point of Alito's dissent is, right, like, this right. is not clear. Um, and then it's just, you know, how do you think that should play out? Should the state be allowed to do what might potentially be something unconstitutional, even if it's just for a short time? Or should we be extra cautious, um, you know, given kind of the stakes for the social media companies? So, you know, in the end that, you know, the social media companies won out here, but there's still a lot of litigation to go around this. So, Kimberly, as we mentioned, this uh, came from the shadow docket It's a topic of conversation that we have uh, revisited again and again here on Cases and Controversies. What's going on with the shadow docket? What's what's the latest on that? Well, as just sort of, you know, a disclaimer at the top, like trying to figure out even what cases we should count on the on the shadow docket are, are sort of different and difficult. Um, you know, this net choice case was like number 700 and something from the court. So we get a whole bunch of emergency requests that the court just always like routinely sort of bats away or grants, you know, things like time limits. So trying to grab the ones that are really meaningful is, is a little tricky, but I've tried to do it um, and come up with 27 cases where the court has issued orders in an emergency request. Um, and, and one thing that I noticed that stuck out to me is that on the times where the court has granted an emergency request, we see the liberal justices, sometimes in combination with like Roberts or Barrett, um, they're in dissent almost more than half of the time when the court goes ahead and takes kind of um, this leap into litigation that's already pending without kind of waiting for it to come up through the normal channels. And then if we look at the opposite side on the denials, about a quarter of the time we see the court's three most conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, dissenting. And so when I look at that numbers, what that tells me is that this is a court, at least according um, you know, to the liberal justices' standpoint, that's using the shadow docket in an aggressive way. And yet there are three justices who really want to use it even more robustly. Um, And so, you know, that's just something that stuck out to me as we try to kind of get a sense of what is going on um, at the court this term. It seems like a really unusual term. And I think that kind of bears out on the shadow docket, which is based on these numbers. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it seems I mean, those numbers sort of speak for themselves. You know, they that that's another Area of division within uh, the court, uh, and uh, that segues nicely into our last topic, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, as we mentioned last time, bad vibes uh, at the court. CNN had a story 
this week that a lot of the clerks at the Supreme Court are lawyering up themselves because of the investigation into the leak in the Dobbs opinion. What do we know about that? It sounds like we don't know a lot. Yeah, we do not know a lot. And I think one of the interesting things about this investigation, this kind of in-house investigation that the Supreme Court Marshal's office is doing is it's very secretive, right? In a way that you know, if the FBI or if Congress were conducting this investigation, we might almost certainly be guaranteed to know, like, the outcome of what was hap- happening, even if we don't sort of know it, you know, in real time what's going on. But we're not even guaranteed that the Supreme Court's going to tell us the outcome of its investigation, um, kind of really in keeping with its secretive nature. But, you know, one thing I find really interesting about the CNN story saying that, you know, the clerks are being asked to turn over their personal phone records is, I mean, the story's interesting in and of itself. Almost everything around clerks in the court has this sort of intrigue and everybody wants to know. But I think the really important thing for me is that, there's, it's just so unusual for the Supreme Court to be operating in this way. You know, being down at the court, you know, a few terms ago, like everybody around the court was very happy, very, you know, they really liked working there. And, you know, we're not in the building anymore. Actually, it's, you know, sectioned off by big gates around it. But, you know, we get these kind of indications, these things like they're asking their their clerks to turn over personal information that, you know, things are really not not well at the court and that there's really seems to be some hostility, um, maybe not just among the justices, but also maybe among the justices and their clerks. Um, and that, you know, there's not a lot of trust, which this institution is really built on. So, I mean, it, you know, I always viewed and I think a lot of people view being a clerk at the Supreme Court as like one of the most prestigious jobs you can have in the legal profession. Um I think, it, I mean, it still certainly is, but, you know, maybe it's not like, you know, walking on air anymore. It's, it seems like it can be, you know, it's a little more of a minefield these days, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. But um, I'm not going to um, cry many tears over <laughs> these clerks who, you know, they do have a fascinating job. They have a great look into the government. And then when they come out, it's almost as if their ticket is made, right? We, we've written stories here at Bloomberg Law about the... Um, enormous, I would say outrageous signing bonus that these clerks get when they go to law firms, you know, it's several hundred thousand dollars um, for their year of work at the court. Well, really, it's all the work they've done to get up to the where they are. But, you know, if you look among, you know, Supreme Court advocates, many, probably most have, at least among the repeaters, have been clerks themselves. The last what is it, four justices of the Supreme Court have all clerked at the Supreme Court. So, I mean, it's still a pretty good gig, um, this term aside. Maybe these clerks were just a little unlucky. Um, but, you know, if it is a really kind of distrustful atmosphere that we're, that's going to bleed into the next few terms, I mean, I guess that could change. Still, I'd probably do it for, you know, a year to get my, get my nice signing bonus. <laughs> All right, Kimberly, on that note, uh, let's uh, put this podcast to bed. Um, Next week, we're going to be back. We're going to get more uh, opinions, right? Yes? No? We are. The Supreme Court has said definitely Monday will be an opinion day. We'll get opinions in one or more argued cases. They haven't ruled out the possibility that we'll have another opinion day next week. I wouldn't be surprised if they added a Thursday uh, into the mix. But, um, you know, as with all things in the Supreme Court, we'll just have to wait and see. And until then, until then, uh, follow along at news.bloomberglaw.com. 
You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.